This week on Mindful Headlines, one of the most influential civil rights leaders of the 20th century. I talk to Dolores Huerta. I am the founder and president of the Dolores Huerta Foundation, co-founder of the United Farm Workers with Cesar Chavez, and I am a Chicana activist and a citizen of the United States of America. At 91 years old, Dolores Huerta shows no signs of slowing down. She has been an activist for more than six decades, receiving numerous awards for her advocacy work, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Human Rights. She was also the first Latina inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. And today I'm sharing my conversation I had with her as part of an interview for King 5 News during Hispanic Heritage Month. You may see part of the story on TV, but I thought I'd share the full interview with you, my podcast listeners. So, Dolores, as you know, we are celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month. And Hispanic Americans, as well as Latinos in this country, have often felt like they have been uh, marginalized. They've been forgotten in U.S. history. Anyone that knows the history of Hispanic Americans in this country well knows that Latinos and Hispanics have contributed a lot, not only to the culture, we've contributed to language. So why do you feel like Hispanic Americans, we've been forgotten and we're still fighting for our rightful place in this country? Well, there has been a history of racism against uh, people of Mexican descent. Uh, uh, the, the, even the indigenous people here, who the original natives here of the United States, have been, you know, discriminated. They have been tortured, lynched, uh, killed uh, to take away their land. And so there's a reason why people feel discriminated. And then we have seen that in our schools. I myself, uh, going through high school, uh, where I grew up in Stockton, California, faced a lot of discrimination. In fact, uh, by the time uh, my friends and myself uh, uh, that went to high school, by the time I graduated from high school, there were only a handful of us that, that were that left because this, the school climate was so unwelcoming. And we have been here in Kern County just recently now. Now that was what maybe, I'm thinking 70 years ago when that happened to me, but here in Kern County, we just settled a lawsuit against the Kern High School District a couple of weeks ago because they had expelled two over 2,000 kids, about 2,300 students in one year. And they were primarily black and brown students because of the racial bias that exists in, in, in the Kern High School District. Uh, you know, we, uh, we won that lawsuit and now they have to change their practices. Uh, and uh, from the 2,300 expulsions of black and brown students in one year, that has now gone down to about maybe 20 expulsions, you know? So the, the, the racism has been severe. You know, I, uh, myself and Cesar Chavez and his wife, Helen Chavez, we started the Farm Workers Union. Farm workers uh, who were doing the most essential work of feeding everybody, they were so discriminated in the fields that they were not even uh, provided bathrooms in the fields. And can, you can imagine what that was like for women, not given rest periods, not given uh, water, cold water to drink while they were out there working in the hot sun. And, uh, and we see that still happening today. You know, farm workers are out there right now uh, in this hot, the heat has gone up to over 109 degrees here in the valley, and they've been out there. And then of course, with, even today with all of the smoke that's coming from all of these, uh, these forest fires, farm workers are out there working. Uh, some of them not even being provided the, 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 uh, the masks that they need 
uh, you know, to, to protect them from the smoke and from COVID. And even today, so, you know, we still see there's a lot of racism. We look at the incarceration rates that we have here. You know, we have in the, in the Central Valley here where the farm workers live and their children, they have built over 22 prisons from Bakersfield to Sacramento. Only one university, the University of Merced, so the racism continues and so if people feel discriminated there's a good reason for it you know they are being targeted by police we've had probably more latinos killed by police uh, both in los angeles and here in the central valley even than, than african-american people and arrested so uh, the, the discrimination continues i'm glad right now that thankfully we do have hispanic heritage month so that we can talk about some of these issues and start addressing them you mentioned um, feeling discriminated because of the history. Do you feel like a lot of Americans that are not of Hispanic or Latino origin truly know the contributions that Hispanics and Latinos have made to this country? No, they don't, and they don't know the history either. You know, we're celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month uh, this month, and I like to tell people, Google a map of the United States before 1848, and what you will see that one third of the United States was Mexico. You know, California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, this was all Mexico. And so when they say to people, go back to us Mexican-Americans, go back where you came from, we have to answer and say, hey, all of us, the indigenous people of South America, North America, we were here before the United States was the United States. And that the real immigrants that came to this country were Europeans. And also, there's a very good documentary on PBS called Foreigners in Their Own Land. I would uh, recommend that to people. Check that documentary out because it really tells the story of what happened when the United States took half of Mexico and made it the United States in the Mexican-American War. I have seen that documentary. I also want to ask you about um, the UFW since you mentioned that just in May. Washington State joined California in offering farm workers overtime. But we went out to eastern Washington where there are a lot of farm workers and they expressed some concerns about perhaps um, farm owners pulling back and only allowing them to work 40 hours. What do you have to say to those workers? Well, I think that uh, is what happens when you do pass a law like overtime is that the employers, of course, are trying to save money for themselves. And so then what they do is they uh, they 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 can, are able to are, are able to uh, give you know be able to uh, bring the work that there ha that has to be done in a way that it can be done uh, within the limit uh, limited time of 40 hours. But that's what happens. You have fought um, so long for farm workers' rights. I want to get your insight on how you feel the progression has happened since you fought alongside Cesar Chavez. Um, in the Delano grape strike and getting more rights for farm workers. How have you felt the country has done in these past few decades? Well, I think in California, in Hawaii, and more recently in New York State, in 2019, New York State adopted a farm worker bill of rights. Uh, thanks to Carrie Kennedy, by the way, who Robert Kennedy's daughter, who fought for 12 years to get some of the basic laws passed that we've had in California for over 40, year, 40 years. So we have made some progress in, uh, in California, Hawaii, uh, New York. We do have unemployment insurance for the farm workers. They have a good workers' comp law. 
if they uh, get injured on the job, that their injuries are paid for, and uh, actually that their, their lost time is paid for. Uh, but in many of the other states, so however, you don't have any of that. Uh, here in California, we also have disability insurance for farm workers, but these are the only three states in the United States that have these protections for farm workers. You don't have these protections in other places. Uh, all of those places in the South, like North Carolina, Florida, uh, Texas, farm workers don't have the same protections that we have here in, in Hawaii and California and now New York State. Washington State, as I said, has joined California in May in offering overtime for farm workers. So how do you feel or can you comment on how Washington State is doing? Well, I think Washington State is probably doing better. Uh, I, I don't think that they have you know, give farm workers the right to organize into a union, though. Uh, there are some really great organizations that have been working up in Washington State. Uh, PACUN is one of the organizations up there that, and in Oregon. Uh, but they still have a long way to go in terms of getting the people and the legislature to give the farm workers the full organizing rights that they deserve. Speaking of a long way to go, immigration has been a lightning rod issue for so many years. Are you confident that in any time soon we'll have some sort of immigration reform for not only allowing farm workers and other immigrants to have some sort of path towards citizenship? Well, I think unless we get some uh, uh, people that are more supportive of immigration reform in our Senate, I think it's going to be a while. Uh, we know that right now, uh, we have some basic uh, laws like the Equal Rights Amendment for Women, you know, the John Lewis Voting Act. Uh, uh, we have the Build Better Act that <laughs> Senator Biden and the Democrats and the U.S. Senate are trying to get passed, which would give uh, people in the United States two years of free college, universal child care, which we need so badly for all of our working families, uh, expanding uh, health care to include uh, dental and vision and hearing aids for uh, our elderly people, uh, that, that is really stuck in the Senate right now, and they can't, they're having trouble getting the votes to pass that, uh, because uh, the Democrats are only 50-50, and then we've got these other two Democrats, uh, Kristen Sinema from Arizona, and Joe Manchin from West Virginia, that are giving the president <laughs> and uh, uh, lead, the leader of the Senate, Schumer, a hard time by not uh, agreeing to vote for these laws. So. When you put immigration reform and you you know you put that up against the ERA and you know uh, the John Lewis uh, Voting uh, Protection Act and all of that, it, it's it's a hard goal for immigration at this point. I think if we all work very very hard and get some more uh, uh, liberal senators elected to uh, the Senate, then and maybe even to the House of Representatives, then we can uh, say to get that we will get immigration reform. And it's kind of sad because in the past. I worked the amnesty bill in 1986 uh, through the Congress, and, and, but what we had that was different there, we even had some Republicans like John McCain that were supportive of immigration reform, and we don't have that today. The Republican Party has become so extreme, and they have used the issue of immigration, of course, like President Trump did, uh, you know, to malign uh, immigrants. And we, so we see that we see the fallout from that today. And then we, when we have global warming and you have so many people coming from these other countries where they have these disasters uh, that are coming here to uh, try to immigrate to the United States, I think it's created a really big uh, problem, uh, you know, for people to, uh, for many use this as an excuse not to support immigration reform. 
Well, you mentioned Republicans and um, not necessarily being supportive of um, certain issues, but the reality is um, that the Hispanic and Latino communities are so large. There's so many cultures encompassed into those terms, and Latinos and Hispanics have a lot of different views on immigration and all sorts of different issues in this country. How important do you feel it is to have representatives in our government that are either supportive of Latino issues, or is it more important to have Hispanics and Latinos see themselves represented in these government positions? Well, I think it's a, a little bit of both. Uh, uh, but in terms of getting the kind of representation that we need, uh, we need people that would support Latino issues, even if they're not Latinos. But I think in the terms, on the issue of immigration, this is the one area where I think the Latino community is pretty much uh, in, in, in sync. Uh, all of the Latino, uh, all of Latino organizations and groups and cultures, they support immigration reform. They're very, they're very definitely united on that issue. I want to ask you a little bit about um, when you were fighting alongside Cesar Chavez and working for workers' rights. You were the lead negotiator for the UFW contract, and um, that took a lot of strength, I'm sure. Do you feel that when you look back, you, do you ever feel like you were in the shadows of Cesar Chavez as a Hispanic woman? Maybe a lot of people don't know that you were the lead negotiator. How do you feel about that time? Well, I think uh, in that time, you know, during the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, and even into the 80s, I think uh, we as women uh, were not as assertive as, as we needed to be. Uh, I also felt that, you know, I, when, in the work that I did, I always tried to uplift women, uh, get women on my negotiating committees. Uh, when I administered the contracts, we make sure I got women in our committees that administer the contracts that we signed with the growers. Uh, I always uh, saw myself as a feminist uh, to begin with. And actually, uh, when we had the great boycott, uh, I was in New York City, and I directed the boycott on the East Coast all the way from Chicago to New York. And people didn't, out there didn't even know who Cesar Chavez was. So I pretty much became the spokesperson for the organization. I, but I think a lot of times, uh, when you would have the media come, of course, they wanted to talk to the president of the organization, and that was Cesar Chavez. So in many ways, I feel I probably got a lot more recognition. Uh, and when we think of the people that really built the organization, the people that went on strike, people uh, who lost their homes, uh, lost their cars, and people who were killed, and nobody knows who those people are. Five martyrs that we have, and people don't know their names, you know? Uh, so, and people that uh, were beaten, people that went to jail. So we have thousands of people that really created the movement. And I think I probably have gotten more recognition, but I do agree that I think as women, uh, we probably need to uh, not stand back, but stand up and, and not, uh, not be hesitant about uh, getting in front uh, of the cameras and, and being spokesperson uh, and taking credit for the work that we do. Speaking of speaking up, you are well known for coining the phrase, si se puede. And I want to ask you what that meant to you when you said it, and also what that phrase means to you today in the year 2021. Well, the, the phrase was actually coined uh, in Arizona, where Cesar uh, Chavez had done a 25-day water-only fast. And I was organizing some of the Latino professionals in Arizona to come and help us, you know, because they had passed this law 
that if you, a farm worker went on strike, they could go to jail for six months. If you said boycott anything, you could also go to jail. And as I was speaking to uh, some of our Latino professionals and asking them to please support us in this campaign that we were doing to get rid of that law, their answer was, no se puede. No, you could not do this in Arizona. In California, you can do all that, but not in Arizona. And my response to them was, si se puede. Yes, we can here in Arizona also. And when I reported that back to our meeting that evening, everybody jumped up and they started chanting and clapping, si se puede. And so that kind of became the mantra then for our campaign that we did in Arizona in 1972. And now it has been a, become a mantra uh, for the whole uh, movement, uh, immigrant rights movement, uh, the student movement. And, and it's a very strong slogan because it does not only mean, yes, we can, as President Obama used it, but it also means, yes, I can. You've had such a wonderful life fighting for all sorts of different causes. You're also a mom of 11. Um, how do you do it? And um, what inspiration do you have for Hispanic and Latina women during this month? Well, we know that we have a lot of leadership and uh, for women in general, I like to quote Coretta Scott King who said, we will never have peace in the world until women take power, okay? And of course that applies to all women, but we know that the Latina women, they are uh, entrepreneurs like my mother was. Uh, right now in terms of the small businesses, Latina women are in the forefront. They have actually created more businesses even their, than their counterparts, the men have, have, have done. So we don't, we do have a lot of leadership and people have that, uh, that sentiment of anger uh, you know, because of the d discrimination that they have suffered, both as women and as Latinos. So we do see that we have a lot of energy among the Latina women right now today. So I, I think we have a lot of promise and uh, that we see that a lot of our Latina women are, are really going to be the leaders of the future and also of the present. I want to ask you about people power as well. You've spoken about that in other interviews, and it seems to be a trademark of the work that you have done throughout your life with um, the Delano grape, grape Strike, with um, women's rights, with more recently the work I know you've done surrounding COVID-19 vaccinations in the Latino community. So is that a result of your Mexican-American heritage, um, influenced from Latin culture at all, because Latinos are very close with their families, we're a large community. Has that influenced how you've approached um, some of these issues and garnering that people power? It's interesting uh, that you asked that question because I've always thought of people power, uh, just people knowing uh, that they have the intelligence to be able to change things, that they have the energy. I never thought about it in that context, uh, but now that you asked the question, I. I do see uh, an answer in there. And in the, in the Spanish language, uh, when somebody, uh, it, you say somebody is educado, somebody is educated, when that person uh, is civil, and when they are uh, polite, when they care about other people, you say that that person is educated. In the Spanish language, when somebody is, has a formal education, you say they are preparados, they are prepared for a career. And so I think that's, that's important uh, uh, to, so people, even if you don't have a high school education or a college education, or like Cesar Chavez, he didn't have a high school education, he only went to the eighth grade, but that people know that they are educated in the sense of that they, they, can, they have some self-worth. 
and that they have a, that they know that they can do things. And basically, when we talk about people power, it's making people understand that they have the inert power to be able to change their situations, uh, change the issues that are affecting their community. And that's what we do when we organize. This is the way that Cesar Chavez and I learned how to organize from the great master Fred Roth Sr. because he is the one that taught us this method of organizing. You sit down with people in their home. You talk about the issues. You talk about how we arrived at this situation. Then we talk about how we can get out of the situation, how we can solve it, how we can correct it. But then people have to understand that they are the ones that have to do it, that nobody's going to do it for them. They have to make the commitment to give up their time and their resources, however meager they may be, uh, to be able to, to make these changes. And so I call it people power. But you can always, you can always say that in another way. You can say, this is democracy 101 that people have to know, especially in a democratic society like ours, that the people are the ones that have to be engaged, they have to be involved, they have to be active, because this is how we keep our democracy alive. If people do not participate, then everything stays the same. And I like to quote this great uh, Spanish philosopher uh, named Jose Ortega y Gasset, who wrote a book called The Revolution of the Masses, and he said, if you do not have an educated citizenry, if you do not have an educated citizenry, then the powerful, the corrupt, and the greedy will rule. And this is so important. So people have to understand that they have a responsibility, not only to their, themselves and their families, but to their communities. And using this method of organizing poor people making them understand that they have power. In our foundational work that we have done, we have had our little chapters that we have. Of, these are very, very poor people. Many of them are immigrants. Many of them don't speak English. Many of them have never had a chance to even go to any kind of schooling. But they have been able to bring in streets, uh, street lights, sidewalks, gutters, you know, uh, sewers into their communities, uh, building uh, neighborhood parks, uh, building sw swimming pools. One of our committees in, another, in a town here, close by Bakersfield here, called Wheat Patch, where the Grapes of Wrath was filmed, even were able to get a state-of-the-art gymnasium built for their middle school and get themselves elected to school boards and city councils and recreation boards and water boards. So this is the power of the people that we talk about. It's democracy. Democracy is getting people knowing that they have the power to do uh, all of these things. And, and they can make this happen. I just want to quickly follow up on that idea of educación, right? And um, knowing where we come from as a community and as a society. Do you think that's part of ending some of the discrimination and hatred towards not only Latinos, but to the other um, when we talk about racial equity here in the United States? Well, I think it's part of it, but I think we have to do a lot more uh, because we know that those in power use the issues of racism, of, uh, uh, you know, uh, our gay movements. Uh, they use the, the whole issue, often <laughs> climate change, even masks <laughs> to divide society. Uh, so we have to combine the organizing work and really focus a lot on education. 
And we've got to get, and we talked about this earlier, about getting the ethnic studies and gender studies and civic studies, um, environmental studies, labor studies, so people can know what labor unions are. We've got to get these into our elementary school level because uh, children are not born racist. Uh, they're not born homophobic. They're not born misogynist. And though we have to start teaching children all of these things right at the elementary school level. And also, we have to bring the arts and the music, you know, and the drama. Uh, theater, this all has to be brought back into our schools. We have to spend much, much, a lot more money on education. If we're going to kind of, you might say, set right our ship of the United States, which right now is, <laughs> is not sailing as straight as it should be. Dolores, what do you feel like your legacy is? Well, hopefully it is one of organizing and, uh, you know, getting people to become activists uh, because I think everybody needs to be an activist. And I like to quote Michael Moore, uh, the filmmaker, who in his Broadway show said, when we wake up in the morning, what do we do? We wash our face, we brush our teeth, and then we call our senators, okay? <laughs> and so I've been saying to everyone in all of my Zoom talks, please call your senators right now wherever you're at, call your senators and tell them to vote on this, all these important bills that are right now in the U.S. Senate and to get rid of the filibuster. And I know here on the West Coast in California, Washington State, Oregon, that we've got some really good senators. But if you have relatives in Florida, you have relatives in Texas, you have relatives in Arizona, please ask them to call their senators to ask them to vote on these bills right now because so much depends on, on our health here in the United States. On, what is happening right now in the U.S. Senate. People have to be civically engaged. I think that is the, the other thing in terms of, so we have to combine organizing with education, you know, with civic uh, participation. And that is a way I think that we can really, really uh, get the kind of a country that we know that we deserve and that we all dream of. Once again, that was Dolores Huerta, civil rights and women's rights icon. I have a link to her foundation, her page at the National Women's History Museum, information from the National Park Service, and some other links in our show notes. I'm Jessica Janner Castro, and you've been listening to the Mindful Headlines podcast. Make sure to subscribe for more episodes, and please share with your friends and family. See you next time.